Good afternoon, everybody. It is Jay Scott. This is The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope everyone's having a phenomenal day. It is in the midst of winter here. We are in the final or middle of February, or almost middle of February. So hope everyone's staying warm and uh, the heat's on in the house. Our next guest is from the band Diamond Head, the founding member. Uh, a band that I've had the pleasure of seeing live a couple of years ago here outside the Chicago area. We have Brian Tatler from Diamond Head. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm doing well, thank you, Jace. Thanks for calling. Uh, nice to speak to you guys over in uh, Chicago. Yeah, I, I thank you very much for doing this. Um, you guys have been a band that I've been listening to since... I was younger. Uh, obviously, the, yeah. the the Metallica connection, you know, uh, opened the door to me listening to you guys, and uh, yeah. love. Yeah. In fact, in, you know, in the heat of the night has always been one of my favorite songs of all time. So, um, this interview here, yeah, this interview here is pretty special to me. So, thank you. I I really enjoyed playing that song live in the heat of the night. I mean, we wrote that about nineteen eighty. And uh, once it entered the set, I, I, it's very rare it leaves the set now. It always works. It's got a, it's got a lovely groove to it, and uh, it's a great vocal. So that that's that's always in well, nearly always in the Diamond Dead set. Yeah, it does have a great groove, and I love the guitar. Mm-hmm. The, the the guitar outro in that song is just uh, yeah, is just in, in incredible. Whips whips everybody up. That does. Yes, it's, it does. it's a triplet groove, isn't it? Uh, it's hard to write a triplet groove, I always think, without it sounding corny, but that one seems to work. We always start the episode every time we have a new guest, and we always begin with the same first question, and that is the essence of the podcast. Just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a band, a performance, a song, or album, that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you, Brian? Um, let me think, let me think. I don't know if it was one moment. Um, I mean, I think one the one moment that influenced me to play guitar is quite definite, and I always say it was Highway Star by Deep Purple. Uh, and I, once I heard that guitar solo, and uh, I'd already started... Now, I... I, I, what it is, I, I liked it, and then I think one day, you know, I'd been learning to play the guitar when I was about fourteen, fifteen, and then I suddenly realised that if I wanted to be able to play like that, like Richie Blackmore, I'd better start taking it more seriously and practicing more. And uh, so that was a bit of a moment where I, I thought, right, I'm going to, I'm going to put the time in because I'd probably been like having a go. Uh, you know, here and there. Because I always had my brother's guitar. Um, before I had my own guitar, I used to have a little dabble on his guitar. And, and um, as I say, once Highway Star happened, I just thought, I'm going to take this seriously and uh, and learn to, learn to play. When After you heard Highway Star, you know, there's always the moment where you know you start playing guitar because you were inspired by a song or a band, was there a moment where you were inspired to get on stage and perform in front of people? Uh, no, 
I don't think so. I mean, I went to see bands with my older brother. My older brother is six years older than me. So when he was going to see bands when he was like 18, 19, he'd drag me along sometimes. He'd say, I've got a spare ticket or something. Do you want to come and see this band? And I, half the time I'd never heard of them, but I would go along anyway because... It was always really exciting to see the, the stage and the lights and all the equipment. And uh, so I, I got into watching bands from about the age of 12 onwards. And uh, I suppose the natural progression is you go on stage, you know, uh, you get to, to see it from the other side, the, the perspective. And once I'd been on stage myself and, and I, I enjoyed it, I was never a, um, a nervous guy, you know, frightened, stage fright and all that, and frightened to go on stage. I always really enjoyed it. I think there's a buzz, as a lot of people would tell you, as associated with with being on stage. Uh, and uh, so I, I probably really enjoyed that side of it. And uh, once you've done it, you want you want it again, you want more and more. And, and that, you know, I think that is one of the main reasons bands keep going because they nothing can replace that that buzz of being on stage and and uh, people singing along with your songs and things like that you, you talk about the natural progression right you know you you were inspired to pick up the guitar you got up on stage was there a moment or yeah. a song that inspired you to write music um no i, I don't think there was uh, we started writing from day one. The first thing I, I, I did in the band was, was write. Uh, myself and Sean would, would, you know, first of all, it was just myself and the drummer Duncan, and we would just jam things. And we didn't know anybody else's songs. We couldn't play covers. We weren't very good. So we'd make up our own little riffs and things. And then once Sean joined, We'd do the same, and he would then try and come up with a vocal and a lyric, and we'd we'd just record them straight onto cassette. But obviously, we wanted to be like the, the classic bands of the seventies. We aimed to be like, you know, maybe Black Sabbath, Zeppelin, Purple. But we had no idea how to get there, and uh, we just kind of found our feet and, and experimented and. And 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 made it work really, and and kept recording and listening and critiquing our own efforts until we got better and better. Uh, I always think it was really hard to get gigs when we first started. We hardly had any equipment. We didn't have a van. We didn't have a manager or anything. So get, I didn't know how to get a gig really. So we did. We used to rehearse every week, and and I think we we just concentrated on keep writing songs. Uh, and and that stood us in good stead because uh, we learned that the art of of songwriting in in a, in a sort of our own way, uh, just by trial and error, and, and it made it probably quite original and quite unique. You talk about that time of you guys, you know, not knowing how to book a gig and and writing music, and you know, you are part of one of the most important movements in hard rock and heavy metal and that's the new wave of british heavy metal movement um what was that like when that scene was building up to what it became um so 
when it appeared in in 1979, Diamond Head had been going for three years, and I just thought it was a perfect opportunity uh, for Diamond Head to get noticed because all along you you know you dream about getting a record deal uh, and making albums and singles and things like that. And uh, so when that happened, and suddenly it was on the front page of this uh, weekly magazine, which was called Sounds in the UK, and uh, Alan Lewis gave it the name, the new wave of British heavy metal. And then suddenly I'm reading about bands like Samson and Angel, which and Iron Maiden and, you know, Saxon Girls School. And I thought, okay, these other bands all over the country, off the our age, doing roughly the same thing. And then I've listened to them. There was a, there was a radio show called The Friday Rock Show where Tommy Vance would play uh, the new bands and so they'd be getting airplay. And then I'd listen and then I'd go and watch some of these bands as they came through the Midlands with Birmingham. And... Uh, uh, very often I think we're as good as these, if not better. And uh, so I, I, I thought it was a fantastic movement. Uh, I thought we were perfect for it. We were the right age. We've been going a few years, so we've got, got it together enough to, to have a backlog of songs. We'd, we'd done a few gigs. We'd, we'd sort of, we were sort of ripe and ready for something to take hold and and, and it, it, it it was very good timing for us and then Jeff Barton got hold of us and uh, did a massive uh, piece on the band and said how much he loved the um, you know am I evil and uh, this and that and uh, it, it gave us a, a huge confidence boost yeah, I can imagine. Um, you know, I've always I, I love that music from that period. It's a very primitive uh, moment in, yep. in in rock and roll, and there were a lot of bands coming out. And I always felt Diamond Head was more advanced than the other bands. I thought the arrangements and the songwriting were were on another level than most of the bands coming out during that period. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I don't know what I can put that down to, other than the maybe the amount of work we put in uh, on the writing side, uh, and just the aspiration of the band. We aimed very high. We wanted to be like Led Zeppelin or something. We we wanted to be the, the greatest band in the world. You know, we weren't. Um, what's the word? We weren't happy to just play locally and you know, do a few gigs or something. We had real ambition to try and write something classic and make make a great album, really. That, that was one of our sort of things that we had in mind. And I always felt that there's all these amazing albums in the 70s, all these amazing bands. The 70s is still my favorite uh, period of music. And uh, so I, I think there was a lot of competition, and I, I felt that we had to be really good to get noticed. Um, and so that was our that was our goal, really. I always felt that period of music, the new wave of British heavy metal, was the first direct influence from Deep Purple, Zeppelin, and Sabbath. You know, when you look it at was. Yeah, when when you look at bands now and they say, you know, they were in, in, inspired by Zeppelin and, you know, Purple and Sabbath, but I felt 
that era was what was the first, you know, that was the interpretation yes. of like the very first interpretation of those influences. Yes. Definitely. 40, I mean, it's 40 years old now. Uh, so but that's, that's, you know, it was immediately on the back of, of growing up listening to your Zeppelins and, and, and then we also had UFO and, and Rush and ACDC and Van Halen and all these, all these amazing bands in the 70s and I could go watch them at at the uh, Birmingham Odeon in you know 10 miles away so to see these bands come through and you'd go watch them and you'd think wow you know to buy their new album and it was a brilliant time and then I think a lot of the new age bands just wanted to kind of almost do more of the same or, or sort of were directly influenced by these 70s bands and if anything I think we probably cranked it up a bit because we'd, we'd had punk rock in the UK in 77 and that was all pretty fast and furious and so I think if you're going on stage in a in like a, a local gig a club or a pub and none of the people have got your record because you haven't made a record yet. All you can do is try and impress them live. And so Diamond It For One had a lot of fast songs that, that would be energetic and exciting and it would try and whip the crowd up into a into a frenzy. And, and so I think some of the energy uh, from, from New the New Wave of British Heavy came from that where... We'd, as I say, we'd experienced punk, and now we're going out there trying to play live and in, impress these these guys, you know, who, who didn't know any of the songs. And, and I learned quite quickly that the fast songs went down better than the slow songs, so we do hardly any slow songs. I also know that, you know, like I said, you guys, with your production, your arrangements, and your songwriting were head and shoulders above some of the other bands. Not to say those bands were not good because they were, but I also yeah. noticed the production on a lot of material being released um, during that time period was was not as good as a Diamond Head or a Tigers of Pantang or some of the other top bands from mm. that era. What do you think caused that? Was it just a lot just a rush to record or what was the reason? I would imagine a lot of it was done quite quickly and cheaply. Uh, all of these, but you know, none of them were signed initially. Where they even made did their own EP and Def Leppard and things like that. So they would just, you know, raise a few hundred pounds and go into a studio and make a quick record, press up, you know, five hundred copies or something, and and try and sell them at gigs. And it was very do it yourself. Another thing that we'd learned from punk rock. Uh, so I think yeah, the quality is limited. People would do it in a day. We did our first single in a day, I and B side and mixed, and then we had a bit more time on the album. We had a week to record and mix the first album, Light into the Nations, which I suppose is a luxury to uh, to some bands. Uh, and and it, it helped that we were very uh, prepared, you know, re well rehearsed with been playing the songs live that always helped tighten up the arrangements but um yeah maybe some of the other bands didn't have the uh the time in the studio it was all it would all be a rush job you know it's all about money isn't it you know how much money have you got how much time so how much time 
would, would you be able to buy studio time? You know, the other thing that I love about that period is the the physical experience. You know, when you look at the album covers for Diamond Head or Iron Maiden yeah. or some of the other bands, I mean, you know, with the logo and the album cover, it gave you it gave you more of a connection to the music. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There was a lot of uh, emphasis on, on artwork and covers and looking the part, you know, long hair and what you wore and how, you know, how you looked in photographs. So I suppose, you know, we realized image was important. Um, we're still probably trying to look like, you know, our favorite bands. Uh, but, um, yeah, the, it, it was an exciting time. There were some, some great records released. And, and uh, uh, you know, just the fact that he produced Iron Maiden is incredible, really. The, you know, one of the biggest rock bands of all time. Uh, who came from nothing, you know, like ourselves, started in a in a little pub, you know, played little pubs around London as we played little places around the Midlands. And to grow into that world-conquering band of 700 million records is astonishing. As you have moved forward, you know, throughout your career, you know, the last two Diamond Head records, you know, the self-titled record a few years ago and then the Coffin Train last year, both incredible albums. And Thank you. How has, you know, when, when you record um, an album and you have, you know, different members coming in and out, how how do you keep you know the the diamond head sound going with you know new members coming in and and and, and them bringing their own influences i i can only uh, presume that because i'm like one of the original members and so i have always been responsible for a lot of the writing i co-wrote all the songs uh that, that something comes from myself a certain way of playing a certain type of chord a certain type of riff and then uh, on the on the last two albums uh that we've done with raz uh raz when he came in fresh he said uh, we should uh sort of stick to what's classic about Diamond Head and uh, sort of reached the early wolf stuff like Borrowed Time and, Can- um, and Lighten to the Nations. And so we had this brief where we said, you know, if it doesn't sound like Diamond Head, we won't, we won't use it. So as usual, we write more songs than we need and we're able to whittle it down. And so that's very Diamond Head. That, you know that's very I mean, this this isn't this it's ever so easy to be too modern or too to this or to that so we just kind of fell back into the the writing it you know being all in the same room and 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 just kind of focusing on things that just just sound like diamond head i mean i've been playing these songs over 40 years so i've got a a definite style and, and a, a feel for, for that kind of music. So um, I can still come up with a guitar riff that, that sounds like a diamond head riff, if you like. Uh, and when that does happen, that's great. Uh, and I will sort of put that to one side, think, oh, oh that, that could be good. And uh, I, I st- even now I still come up with ideas. Uh, I'm much slower than I used to be, but uh, that, I think that happens as you get older. Uh, but we are pretty careful about what 
it should sound like and, and um, try and keep the legacy intact. And uh, I think everybody in the band has got a huge amount of respect for the band, the history, the songs, the name, uh, and the fact that it's been influential. So we, we try to keep all that in, intact and, um, and, and deliver it to the, you know, the best of our ability. When you talk about the writing on these last two records and you compare it to what it was when you guys were first coming up, are there, what are the similarities and what are the differences? Uh, well, you, I think it's, it, you can make a record cheaper now than you could uh, years ago when you had to rely on a record label and, and then they would send you to a studio in London and you'd have to have a producer and all that. Whereas the last few records we've pretty much done ourselves. Uh, you can do it all on Pro Tools. You can do a lot of it at home. Um, you, you know, you need a space to record drums and then you can do everything else in a, in a tiny area, really. You don't have to go to big thousand-pound-a-day studios anymore. So I like all that. It takes off the pressure. Um, you can spend more time making the record because it's not costing the earth and you, you, you don't feel in debt to the label and uh, like they've got some kind of pressure over you where, you know, you've got to, you've got to sell records now because you're in debt, you know, and... It, uh, uh, I've felt that pressure in the past, and it's not—it's not a very nice place to be. But um, the writing is still very similar to how it was. As I say, I mean, very often I will just come up with a riff, and then I'll, uh, when it comes time to make the record, I'll try and do a demo. Uh, but we wait till we get to the rehearsal room and then try out the ideas and I'll say I've got this this could be the verse, this could be the chorus and off we go and then people will throw in ideas, what about if you you change that bit there or you put put that bit on the end and you know and you start jamming it and you get the tempo and then you, your singer starts jamming lyrics and coming up with phrases and a, a title and it all it kind of evolves um in the room, we, we always tape rehearsals, and we used to tape rehearsals back in the day, it'd be just straight onto cassette, whereas now you can do like a bit of a, a Pro Tools recording, and you can you can send everybody a CD so they can hear the, hear what, what was done today, you know. Uh, so a lot of it's similar, uh, and other parts uh, are very different. I think the digital age has really helped bands make, you know, more music much cheaper um, and and give give some artists complete freedom to make their own records that was kind of impossible in the 70s. Yeah, you had your, you know, A&R guy coming, you know, down to tell you yeah. what sounded good and this can't be on this, you know, yeah. song. And that's got to be a huge, and, a huge burden lifted off of the artist. Absolutely. And, and now, as I say, you don't even need a label. You can do it yourself. You can put it on the net. You can, you can sell them at gigs. I mean, it's much better with a label because they will get into the shops and promote it and all that. And so everybody still strives, I think, to get to that point. But it, 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 does still, it means now that you can make your own album quite cheaply and release it yourself and get it on the net and make a little video. And, uh, it, it's... It, you know, so a lot of records are probably being made now that would never have been made years ago because 
no A&R man would have signed the band or the artist because they're too weird or too different or too eclectic. And uh, I'm sure some good comes of it because uh, things that would have slipped through the net, you know. I think, like you said, that's a huge positive, being able to make music at a fraction of the cost that it was yeah. um, years ago. The also, I think, yeah. negative, though, about getting your music out is the amount of platforms. And sometimes I think that there's too many for the fan to go to. Sometimes the fan is like, I don't even know where to go. There's Pandora, there's Spotify, there's iTunes. How do you feel about yeah. that change with music and in, in how it relates to recording? You know, there's the ease of recording, but now you've got to work social media, you've got to work all these platforms to have your music heard. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, that is confusing. Uh, you need somebody, really, who, who's good with that. Uh, I'm not particularly good with that. Uh, it's ideal if you've got somebody in the band who can do all the social media, because it does need doing, because other bands are doing it, and you will get left behind if you're not, if there's no presence uh you know, it almost like constant promotion just to just to keep your head above water. Uh, so, what what do you do? There's this far more bands around nowadays than there used to be. There's far more artists, and there's all these. You know, I don't know. I mean, there must be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of little labels that uh, you know just didn't exist in the seventies. So, it, it's great that. You can do records cheaper and you can get your product out, but that does create uh, a massive market for, um, you know, I dread to think how many albums are released every year. And the public probably only sees, you know, 2% of, of, of the uh, the albums or gets to hear because they're the ones that are the, by big artists and get promoted and get in all the magazines because they've won you know, music prizes and things like that. That's very true. You know, sometimes you see maybe what's not the best in terms of music being the most popular. And, you know, the mm -hmm. independent artist is left to promote themselves and, yep. you know, try to connect with their fans. Well, yeah, but I, I think the thing is, if it's good enough, it should rise to the surface. Somebody at some point should start going, that's good. We like this, and then it will sell, and it, and then you maybe somebody will make them an offer. They might get management. I think if it's good, it'll find its way to the to the top. Uh, you know, there must be exceptions to that rule. But if you keep plugging away, and it's good, someone will, someone somewhere will spot you. I feel. And how do you feel about the you know the new music and the new bands? coming out of the UK uh, right now. I mean, it's, it's, it seems like there's a, there's a, it's very similar to when you guys were coming up. Yeah, there's a lot of bands about, uh, it, it must be tough to get noticed again. Um, it must be really tough to be original because a lot of the bands I hear just sound a bit like this or a bit like that. Um, but then I, I guess you could have said that about the Wobbleham bands. You could say, well, they sound a bit like Sabbath. They sound a bit like Priest. They sound a bit like Thin Lizzy. <laughs> but the, to, to me now, I, I do the same. I think, oh, this band sounds like Led Zeppelin. This band sounds like Guns N' Roses. This band sounds like Motley Crue. And I just, you know, dish out their uh, comparisons willy-nilly. Uh, because because ideally, I'd like a band to, 
to be doing something really original that you've not heard before and you think, wow, you know, that's good. I'm always looking for a good singer, good songs. I think that's half the battle. If you've got a good singer, then my ears prick up straight away. I saw a band that supported us recently and and straight away I thought, oh, he's a good singer. And uh, they're only a young band from the Midlands, but I I just really like the singer and straight away... uh, I thought, well, with a guy like that at that age, you know, you've got potential. And so, you know, I spoke to them afterwards and gave them maybe a little bit of uh, the the benefit of my experience. But, um, yeah, it must be tough. Um, But you've just got to keep going. I mean, it may not happen overnight uh, for, for a band. You know, I mean, you could look at Diamond Head as an example. And Diamond Head... Never made it huge. We split. We, uh, we but we're still going now after forty years. So the path to you know success is very very difficult. And I feel if you want to if you want to have a career in music, you do have to keep going and and be prepared to do the work and not necessarily you know become huge and sell a million records, but but just to stick at it and enjoy what you're doing and uh, hopefully you know you'll get somewhere at least you may not get into that rare atmosphere where the big bands live but you'll at least hopefully have fun trying <laughs> well well that is part of the journey right i mean you you have your influences yes. and you have you know, I think of you mentioned Rush before, you know, when you guys were coming up and, you know, Rush was originally called the Canadian Zeppelin and... Yes, they were. Yeah, and they... Because of his voice. He, he had a kind of Robert Plant high voice, didn't he? And uh, things like Working Man, they're a bit a bit Zeppelin-y, aren't they? Anthem and things. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm a huge Rush fan and... Uh, yeah, definitely. You've got to pigeonhole the bands a little bit just to, you know, somebody says, what are they like? You've got to find a comparison, haven't you? So I could say, well, no, they're completely original. <laughs> when was the last time somebody said that to you? It's not going to happen, is it? Yeah, I think I think that's the million-dollar question, though, right? You know, I mean, it, it's so, like you said, it's difficult because the influences in rock and roll are very, very um, specific. And yes, you know, it's been defined by all the bands, and there's not a lot of wiggle room. Uh, we're we're kind of recycling all the time. But what my point is, though, with Rush is when their first album came out, they were compared. They were called the Canadian Zeppelin, and then they uh, they developed their own sound. And yes. I think you know, throughout their career, I think the I think they got farther and farther away from being compared to Zeppelin as they released more material. I mean, all the conceptual albums and all that stuff. So maybe that's what happens here. Maybe, you know, people come out and they say, oh, they sound like this band, they sound like that band. And as they make more music, they, they develop their own sound. That, that is right. You're absolutely right. You will eventually become your own thing and, and you'll, you know, you wouldn't compare Rush to Zeppelin now in a million years. But I suppose they had to put them somewhere, you know, to have a clue as to what do, what does it actually sound like. Yeah, well, a bit like Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and that's it. You'd, you know, it's going to take there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 
So what's next for Diamond Head? What's what's going on in 2020 with with uh, with the band? Yeah, we've got uh, we've got dates coming up. We do five gigs uh, opening for Saxon in uh, England and Europe. We're doing the Hammersmith Apollo, which uh, I've I've already done a few times, but it's a prestigious uh, venue in London that everybody's played. Uh, and so we're doing that. It's called the Eventim Apollo now in in Hampstead. But uh, and we do Manchester Apollo. Uh, we're doing a big one in um, Dusseldorf. Uh, and then we've got some of our own dates where we'll do a full set. Uh, we've got some festivals. We're doing Bang Your Head. We're doing one in Barcelona. Uh, we're doing Bloodstock. We're on the main stage this time. Uh, and I think Judas Priest are headlining. So we're on, you know, a few bands before. Excuse me, Judas Priest. So that would be great. We've got festival. Uh, sorry, we've got a, a, a thing called the Wacken Full Metal Cruise, which will be from Finland. Uh, we go. We're going to Brazil as well in uh, September, I believe. Um, and we've never been to South America before, so that's a first for us, and uh, that'll be exciting. Those crowds in South America are crazy. Uh, yeah, I've seen a few on on various videos and things, and I think that'll be uh, that'll be one to watch. Uh, some and our first time, you know, it'll be a bit special. They are very passionate about their about their music, yep. and they really they are. They yeah. are. What about you know? You mentioned you you opening up for Saxon, and they were part yeah. of the new wave of British heavy metal movement as you guys were. How I mean, yeah. you guys have a connection, obviously. When you guys see each other and and have a conversation, do you guys ever talk about how it was back then to what it is now? How is that connection still developed today? Uh, a little bit. It will reminisce, if you like, about certain times that we've played together and, you know, records and things like that. Uh, and probably pass on little bits of advice to each other, you know, about producers and studios and, record labels and management and anything you know business wise that that may be of use to each other um but but i think we, we also uh, there's a lot of respect for, for the survivors the, the bands like like a diamond in saxon or a girl's school we seem to bump into girl's school quite a lot and and there's a lot of you know mutual respect for they are still going you know they've made album after album and still going Diamond Dead's still going so we didn't you know give up we were in it for the long haul we didn't go back to our day jobs you know we uh, we kept going through thick and thin and uh, there's and I think that's fair play I mean that takes a certain amount of resilience and tenacity to, to keep going uh, when, when it's ever so easy to give up and just say oh, I've had enough of this or you decide you don't like the singer or you fall out with the drummer or something uh, but but you have to kind of overcome those differences and those ego clashes and what have you and, and think of the greater good and the, keep the whole thing together a band that stays together you know has got the potential to do anything uh, it's the bands that fall apart where it's such a waste, such a tragedy. We all know fantastic bands that that should have stayed together and would have been huge and would have been headlining all the festivals if they'd have stuck together. How do you 
push through those those difficult times? You know, where do you find your your motivation to persevere? Um, um I think it's just the, the greater good, as I say, uh, the fact that you have the band is more important than the individuals, and. Uh, the, to keep the name alive and to keep the ball rolling, you have to put aside your differences and little arguments that can build up into, you know, problems and, and just talk face to face. You know, you know, I think I've never had a big row with anybody face to face. I can, I can, I can, you know, on emails you can get a bit brave, but uh, I think face to face we can work it out. And that's always been the way, you know, with problems. Talk face-to-face, sort out your problems, and they'll go away. And we all basically want to have fun. We want to play our instruments. I mean, I love playing the guitar still. Um, it's I always feel it's what I do best. I've spent so many thousands of hours practicing that I at least want to keep playing as long as I can until maybe health becomes an issue and stops me playing but uh, I think we all appreciate that we need each other we can't do it on our own and uh, so it's may not be perfect but you let things go and you compromise and you get to, from A to B you know and usually it works out for the best As far as new music goes is what are the plans for Diamond Head in the future? Uh, we've got a few ideas uh We've, we've done bits of recording um, this year, but there's no plan for a new album just yet. I think we'll be looking into, you know, next year before we we, uh, we get on to that subject. But we're hoping to put something out either later in the year or um, maybe next year. But I'm not I'm not saying what it is yet. But we have got a plan in mind. And, you know, as we close here, you mentioned that, you know, you're going, um, you know, to South America, you've been to North uh-huh. America, you know, I, I saw you guys a couple of years ago in Chicago. Um, yeah. how, wh- what is the difference in terms of accessibility in, in, in terms of expense to touring America or South America? I've heard bands who are in the UK find that touring America yeah. is a huge expense. Is that different than yeah. it was back in the day? Well, we didn't come over in the day. We don't never toured the, the States in the 80s or 90s. We, the first time we played in the US was in 2002. So unfortunately, we missed out on on all those times where we could have got a foothold and maybe sold a few records over in America. So, I mean, nowadays, we we know... What we, how we can do it, you know, we we hire a splitter van, we stay in hotels or motels, we, uh, you know, promote because we've got a bit of a name, we can get a certain amount, a certain fee, and then you work out, okay, well, we need to do say twenty five dates, and that will pay for work visas, flights, hire of the van, hotels, wages, etc., fuel. Uh, and so we do the maths and, and we work out, okay, it's feasible. So we've been over to the States maybe six, seven times. And that's pretty much how we work it now. Um, and, and we've done Canada. We did 15 dates in Canada. Uh, so it, it is feasible. Um, it just needs somebody to 
you know, do the work and, and make sure it happens. And, and we, we've got an agent in the U.S. and we've got, uh, and Carl Drummond does a lot of the work. He used to, he's English, but he used to live in the U.S. So um, he would would know, that, you know, a few tricks and and uh, what we need to do to do this and that and, and make it work, really. So uh, he would put a lot of time and energy into to making it happen, Carl. The last time you guys toured Chicago, you guys played at the Forge, which is outside of the city. Uh, I took my 13-year-old yes. son to the show, and he's a big Diamond Head fan. And I have to say, oh. you know, in, in compliments to you guys, after the show, you guys were wonderful. You, you know, you took pictures with them. Uh, gave him a drumstick, cool. signed picks. It was great. It was a great experience for him. That's great. That's great. We always try and come out and, you know, say hello, uh, signed things. You very often got guys with, you know, 20 pieces of, of, of CDs and vinyl to sign. And uh, I'm always happy to do that and take, take a few selfies. You can't really avoid the selfies now. <laughs> so uh, it, it it's part of the job, isn't it? It's, uh, it comes with the territory. Uh, but it's fine. I don't mind. It's not like we shoot off in the limo to, the, to a lap dancing club or anything. It, it's more like pack the gear away, get some food, get, <laughs> talk to the fans, get to bed. <laughs> well, you made you made an impression on a thirteen year old kid. I mean, he wears his diamond head shirt to, to, to high school, and and uh, you know he he always talks about that <laughs> moment. So you, I mean, he he loved you guys. I mean, obviously he discovered you guys through Metallica, and you know he he wanted to check you guys out live. And we I took him to the show, and he had a blast. That's great. That's really good to know. So another generation of fans. Uh, to sustain us into our old age. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, Brian, it's been a blast. Thank you for, for having this conversation with me. I do appreciate it 100%. Uh, thank you again. No problem. Thank you uh, for t- taking the time to talk to me. I've enjoyed it. That's Brian Tatler from Diamond Head. This is Jay Scott from The Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Hope everyone has a great day, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.